Hey, Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you that you are our God and that we can know you in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for the great privilege we have of gathering together on this unique morning where we can all be in one room before the service and think together about you and about life in the local church. And Father, we thank you for the guest that we have. We pray that you would help us to be attentive to the words that we are about to hear. We pray that you would prepare us through these words for the days ahead, for as many days as you give us. We love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our guest speaker this morning is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, the host of the briefing, a podcast on the nexus between theology and culture, uh, a founder of the Together for the Gospel Conference, and the author of numerous books, including a couple that I want you to know are available in the bookstall after the service, Words from the Fire, uh, a great book going through the Ten Commandments and how to think about the Ten Commandments as Christians, and The Conviction to Lead, a great book for those who are thinking about what it means to both be a leader and, I think, follow godly leadership. So those books are available in the bookstall. And as I'll mention more during the morning service, our guest speaker is also a longtime friend of Mount Vernon. He's come to Atlanta in part to speak tomorrow to Gabin, the Greater Atlanta Baptist Network, speaking on the future of associational life in the SBC. Basically, that means how do churches cooperate with one another at the local level? He's going to be thinking, directing our thinking on that tomorrow. But this morning, uh, he is speaking on the 21st century challenges facing the local church. Now, this much I know about what's ahead. We will be wrapping up this morning at about 1010 so that we have plenty of time to get into the service, uh, to get ready for that. If we have time for Q&A, I will stand up and solicit your questions, and I will state them aloud in the microphone so all can hear them, and then our guest will answer them. Uh, I'm very thankful that he is here. Uh, my former professor and uh, president at Southern Seminary, uh, and uh, a man who loves the local church, Dr. Albert Moeller. Please welcome him. Thank you. Well, thank you, Aaron, Dr. Minikoff. It's a great joy to be here at Mount Vernon, to be here once again. Uh, I can remember when this was the sanctuary, and I can remember preaching when your new sanctuary was very new. Uh, so new we couldn't touch the paint. That it's, uh, it's good to be back and see what a thriving congregation is here. And I'm just so thankful for you, for your pastor, for the heritage of this church. And it's very good to be back. My how things have changed. If you just think about the last 20 years, you recognize that what we have experienced as a culture shift is, is more massive than even we recognized just a, a few years ago. The first book I wrote was entitled Culture Shift, and it was an attempt to help Christians to understand what it means to live in a time in which the culture is turning itself upside down, sometimes visibly, sometimes invisibly. And uh, I think there were some people back uh, when I published that book 
uh, over 10 years ago who, who, who thought it was a, a bit of an exaggeration. I was actually applying sociological theory, the intersection of theology, demonstrating that even if you're not a Christian, you understand that the fundamental shaping influences, the worldview, the culture was changing radically around us. But just consider the fact that the big news over this weekend, and it may not have made the paper here in, in Atlanta, but from a Christian perspective, it's hard to imagine bigger news than this. For the last several generations, one of the most significant Christian ministries on the major American University College campus was the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Just a so curiosity, how many people in this room had lives touched by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, IVF? There you go. The largest university system in the United States is the University of California system. As of the end of last week, InterVarsity has been expelled from any active presence on any campus of the University of California. Now, that would have been inconceivable 10 years ago. It would, it, it would have been unthinkable a decade ago that a group as respected as the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We're not talking about a cult here. We're, we're, we're talking about one of the most mainstream evangelical respected ministries on both sides of the Atlantic for 100 years. Now, officially decertified, no longer allowed to recruit or to organize on the campuses of the nation's largest public university system. That's what a culture shift looks like. Several years ago on Broadway, there was a, a Western. I, I, I'm not exactly sure how Broadway pulls off a Western, but nonetheless, uh, there on the stage in Broadway, they did so. And at one point, it was a musical too, which may make many of you even less interested in what Broadway would do with a musical, but uh, with a Western. But the, the typical uh, Western got messed up in this musical in that the, the bad guys wore black hats and the good guys wore white hats, and there's a scuffle in the middle of the musical, and all the hats fall off, and they just grab the nearest hat, and, and no one knows who is whom. Well, in our society, most of us, and I say this as uh, someone who's old enough to be a grandfather now, most of us have spent almost all of our lives, in terms of the culture around us, wearing white hats. And now in the view of the culture, including many of our own neighbors, we're wearing black hats. How did that happen? We didn't change our position. We didn't all of a sudden assume some new worldview. We didn't adopt some new eccentric teaching that we claim to be found in Scripture. The Christian church teaching the same thing the Christian church has taught consistently for 2,000 years now finds itself in the outlaw class in America's post-Christian culture. And that's a massive reality for us. And, and it comes with a great deal. It comes with a very great deal. Uh, it, it comes with, uh, with the recognition that our children, and by our children I mean those who are infants and grade school children, but especially those who right now are in high school and, and college age, they are coming into adulthood in a time in which holding to what Christians have believed for two millennia will now cost them friends and probably cost them jobs and may cost them any number of issues related to their social standing. So. Who, who would do this? You know, what, what do we say in response to this? As Francis Schaeffer famously asked a generation ago, how shall we now live if this is the new reality? I want to direct us, this is the Bible study hour, 
want to direct us to a text of Scripture, and that is 1 Peter. In the New Testament, 1 Peter, chapter 1, Peter the Apostle writes, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. You know, uh, I was raised in a church very much like this one. I was raised in the Southside Baptist Church in Lakeland, Florida. Tall steeple, Southern Baptist Church, pipe organ, uh, robed choirs. Uh, my, my pastor had a Ph.D. from Southern Seminary and had gone to Duke, uh, was the picture of Southern refinement. Uh, Mrs. His name was T. Rupert Coleman, um, known to, uh, to kids as Troopert. He was a formidable figure. His, his wife, uh, Mrs. Coleman, was the picture of Southern distinction. Every Sunday morning, uh, she came to church uh, with uh, white gloves on uh, and a hat and the, the whole picture. I, I, I grew up in that kind of church. I grew up with ladies with open-toed shoes in the nursery uh, rocking us and giving us windmill cookies. Uh, vacation. I was a sunbeam. How many of you can remember what that was? Yes. Jesus wanted us to be sunbeams, to shine for Him each day. Uh, we could sing the song for you. We won't. Uh, but uh, I began as a sunbeam. I was in every graded choir. My father was a formidable Baptist deacon who knew how to deke. He, uh, he, was, he was old school, dearly loved us, sacrificed for our family and uh, was, was absolutely committed. We were there every time the door was open, which generally was easy because we often opened the doors. Uh, when I was 15, uh, my father handled my adolescent rebellion in a very Baptist deacon way. I announced one Sunday after church that I decided to resign from the youth choir. I don't even know why. It just struck me that I was just going to, I'd done it for all these years. I guess I'd done it enough. I was going to stop. I just announced at Sunday dinner, I've decided I'm quitting the youth choir. And like a 15-year-old boy sticking your neck out that far, you're waiting to see exactly how far you're getting with this. My father didn't lose his temper. He didn't get angry. He just looked at me and said, son, you didn't join. I was elect by the foreknowledge of my father as a, as a member of the youth choir. I, uh, I had not joined. It was appointed unto me that I was in the choir. Having not joined, it was not mine to resign. And, uh, and that, that, was, that was it. Uh, I grew up in that kind of church. I, I grew up in which… and, and uh, the, the major employer in town was Public Supermarkets, uh, founded in that town. And, and I, would, I would go into that church building beautiful, beautiful church building, very much like this one. And uh, I, I would walk in, and there would be elderly men who would shake my hand when I was three years old. And I found out later, that's the CEO of one of America's largest corporations, and he was just there as a Baptist deacon. And uh, everybody was there, the college president uh, of, of the town, the major college in town. He was, uh, 
he was there. The dean of students at the college was my RA leader. Uh, you, you, everybody was there. All the major employers were there. And, and, and if any young man moved his family to Lakeland, Florida and wanted to sell insurance, or wanted to open a law practice, or, or wanted to just be seen as a decent human being, uh, they joined a church. And, uh, and so just about every Sunday we had families coming forward and they would join the church and they would become a part of the fellowship and it was, it was what you did. And religious pluralism on my block, we, we, we didn't have a block, we lived on a circle as a matter of fact. We lived in a, in a round neighborhood, but everybody in that neighborhood was, was uh, pretty much sharing the same worldview. Religious diversity was the fact we had a Presbyterian family and two Methodist families who were definitely suspect in that entire block. <laughs> And, and, and that was it. And, uh, and, and, and we, so what kind of major cultural debate did we have? D nothing. Uh, when I went to the public school, and I, I went, I started to say K through 12, but they didn't have K when I was coming along, just to 1 through 12. Uh, when I went to the first grade, the teachers shared the basic worldview. My parents never would have given a moments thought to the fact that I was entering alien territory. I was entering a, uh, an environment operating by a different worldview, and, and it wouldn't have made much sense. The principal went to our church. Most of the teachers went to our church or to a neighboring church. And, and I knew them because my family followed the rule that basically summer was vacation Bible school, which meant that I attended several, which I now understand was a interesting device in mothering as well. I was the oldest of several children, and she could handle me by sending me to vacation Bible school. And so, and, and that was, and Southern Baptist programmed everything, so I went to three or four Southern Baptists, sometimes more than that, vacation Bible schools, made the same cornstarch 3D maps of the Holy Land several times. I, I wouldn't trade that childhood for anything. I, I, I wouldn't trade the influences in my life uh, I wouldn't trade having uh, Sunday school teachers who poured themselves into me and, uh, and youth leaders and others. And, and when I went to college, uh, well, I, I had been, as a high school student, been made aware uh, because my, my family moved to South Florida, to uh, Manhattan or New Jersey, uh, in Fort Lauderdale when I was in high school. And, and I had a huge worldview battle because now the neighborhood is very different. Now my, my best friends in high school, one was a member of a very conservative Roman Catholic parish, and the other was a son of a Reformed Jewish rabbi. That's very different. And at the same time, huge things are going on that are beginning to reshape the culture. And as a 17-year-old who was very, very interested in Christian apologetics, very determined to understand the world around me, I poured myself into trying to understand these things. I had a crisis of faith when I was 15 or 16 that just threw me into a complete tailspin because I, 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 I mean, it's one thing when everybody around you agrees, but now everyone around me included people that had widely different worldviews. I had a, a, a teacher in high school who was an atheist, and he also was the best teacher I had uh, in terms of making me learn. And, and, and I'm, I'm struggling with all these things, and, and I, I was taken under wing by a pastor. It's a long story I will not share you, but, but another pastor, not my pastor, another pastor took me under his wing and, and poured much into me. His name was Jim Kennedy at uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Some of you will remember him. And, and he helped to make me a theologian and an apologist. He did not make me a Presbyterian, although he tried. It was, it was, 
it was that worldview conflict. And I'm writing a book right now that will be coming out next year. The title of it is Aftermath. The subtitle is Love, Life, and Liberty in the Wake of a Sexual Revolution. Uh, the original title was Love, Life, and Liberty in the Wake of a Moral Revolution, but we discovered that people misunderstand what that's about, so we'll just, we'll just go ahead and put the sex in there since that's what we're talking about. And, uh, and, and that's what happened to me. I, I was 17 years old, and uh, the Miami-Dade City Council, and this will be 1976, passed the first gay rights ordinance in the United States. And, um, Quite frankly, it, it, it was astounding that anything like this could have happened, and, and it, was a, it was a pretty significant measure. And a, a woman by the name of Anita Bryant, uh, who was the spokeswoman for, she was a former Miss Oklahoma, and uh, the spokeswoman for the Florida citrus industry, which was huge, uh, she came on and, and led an effort. And, and so I, I went with my parents down to the Nami Beach Convention Center in 1976 in 1977, as, as Christians began to gather together, concerned about uh, all of this, and, uh, and, and the city council, the Miami-Dade Council Commission had to rescind that action, uh, given the political blowback that came uh, from the society. And, and, and the political blowback came from Jewish authorities in Miami and, and Fort Lauderdale. The political blowback came from Episcopalians and United Methodists, and uh, in other words, it was a massive, uniform, cultural response, this is not the direction we want to go. Well, so I was in that room, by God's providence, in 1977, uh, when many people would say what became later, the new Christian right was born. Uh, the, uh, the preacher was, a, was imported for that event. I'd never heard of him before. Most of America never heard of him before. His name was Jerry Falwell. And uh, he arrived on a bus that said the old-time gospel hour, and I knew he had a bus, and he had a, he had a program, and that, that was about it. It wasn't even on television yet. And, and the fact is, is that there wasn't, it, it wasn't seen as anything on the extreme right. Again, there were Episcopalians and United Methodists and, and Presbyterians and, uh, you know, dwellers in Mesopotamia all gathered together in that, in, in that room because it was, it, it, at that point, over 80% of Americans... Uh, believe that what uh, the Miami-Dade Council had done was wrong. Well, that was 1977. Now, fast forward about 40 years, and we're on the threshold of the United States Supreme Court ruling that coast to coast, there can be no law preventing same-sex couples from getting married. And the question right now is which case at the U.S. Circuit courts of appeal, the Supreme Court will take with oral arguments likely to come in January, and once again a major decision likely by the end of June of next year. That's the title explanation for my book, Aftermath. What after that? And frankly, even if the Supreme Court decides that it's going to blink and not take the case, which is extremely unlikely, given the fact that the Supreme Court doesn't allow cases of this magnitude to have conflicting opinions at the circuit level. Uh, there's enough on the table already. The aftermath is already here as evidence of the fact that InterVarsity Christian Fellowship didn't have to wait for the summer of 2015. It got evicted in the summer of 2014. Some of you read Christianity Today. The current issue of Christianity Today is about the InterVarsity Fellowship, major article in it about the InterVarsity Fellowship at Vanderbilt University, likewise being cast off of that campus 
kind of the, the forward expulsion of, of that which follows. What we saw when we read the opening words of 1 Peter chapter 1 is that when Peter is addressing the church, he addresses the church as exiles. He, he says, to those who are elect exiles, in other words, they're elect to salvation, but in terms of their earthly citizenship, they're exiles. They have been dispersed. He mentions several places in Asia Minor, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He makes very clear this is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This just did not happen to this church in this age. And he says it's for a purpose. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, this is for their sanctification. For obedience to Jesus Christ, that is the purpose of their existence. And martyrdom is in the picture, and for sprinkling with His blood. Well, you look at this and you think, you know, my, it, it must have been horrifying for the Christians receiving this letter from Peter to have recognized that God chose from the beginning of the world, before the cosmos was itself created, that they would be elect unto salvation in Christ, and that they would fulfill their election in terms of their earthly existence by an exilic existence that would be for their sanctification and for their witness to the gospel, for their obedience to Christ, and part of that witness would come by suffering. And I'll admit for most of my Christian pilgrimage, when I've preached through 1 Peter, it, it, it's been more theoretical and more historical. More historical in the sense that there were Christians who lived this kind of existence and we know their stories. But it's also true that it was largely theoretical, and that is that it would certainly be the case in some places at some times that this would be the experience of the church. And we are now in that place, and this is now that time. Huge challenges before us. I know the time is brief. I mean, we need to look each other in the eye and recognize that we are obligated to a sexual ethic. And we're not obligated to a sexual ethic merely because God who created us gave us sexual orders, but because we know that God did that precisely because He loves His human creatures and wills their flourishing. And that's the major worldview divide. In fact, in, 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 in the book, I'm making the argument that if you want to understand the, the distinction between Christianity and atheism, you can understand it no better than this. If you believe that your moral life, your sexual lives, your marriages, your, the purposes for which you exist, if you believe that those are divinely defined, in all likelihood, you're a Christian. If you believe that God is not a part of that picture and you don't even believe either in the existence of such a God or in the binding authority of what His, His commands would be, then you're not a Christian. And, and that means an awful lot of people who had been members of churches are finding out they're not Christians because they really don't believe either that God exists or that He has binding authority upon our moral lives, and particularly in that zone of personal autonomy most Americans now claim for themselves about their sexual, expressive, romantic lives. 
And, the, and that's the great divide. And of course, it's not just those two polarities, is it? it, it it's a group that would like to be able to find some middle ground where you can, you can claim that, uh, that, yes, the Bible has a revealed sexual ethic, but it's not the actual laws and statutes and principles and commands that are at issue, but just the inner ethic. And let, let me just point out that there are an awful lot of, uh, of evangelicals, there are an awful lot of churches that you and I know right now as, as part of what we believe to be our, our own family of faith and belief, and five years from now, they will be in a very different place. I say that with a great sense of loss and, and agony because it's, it's, going to, it's going to be excruciating when this happens. But, but the, the divide we're seeing right now in the culture is going to lead many churches that had withstood the first two rounds of theological liberalism to succumb. And we're already seeing it. What were those first two rounds? The, the first round came early in the 19th century, excuse me, late in the 19th century, early in the 20th century. Uh, where, where you had the, the impact of, of modern thinking and uh, certainly post-enlightenment thinking coming to the point where intelligent people, especially in places like uh, the American Northeast or especially in, uh, in, in much of uh, uh, the intellectual uh, circles of, of Europe, came to the conclusion that it just was no longer intellectually defensible to believe that God had given us a book, and that this book came with binding authority. And so you had someone, some of you remember the name of Harry Emerson Fosdick. He's kind of a great symbolic figure of that first great round of theological liberalism. Harry Emerson Fosdick was, uh, was the pastor of the Riverside Church in New York City, infamous theological liberal or famous, depending on how you looked at it. And Harry Emerson Fosdick gave the Beecher Lectures at Yale University. And, and he, he held up the Bible, the, and those are the, the nation's oldest endowed lectureship on preaching. And, and he held up the Bible and he said, this is for most preachers a problem. Well, there you got it. In other words, now we've got to solve this problem. How do you solve it? It's by finding some inner light that allows you to abandon the actual pattern of words and, find, and, and so you no longer talk about substitutionary atonement. You simply talk about God's love for us in Christ. You no longer talk about the, the thou shouts and the thou shalt nots if any of those conflict with the larger society. And, and so these days, if you're, if you're in these liberal churches, the only ethic that's left is the ethic of consent. And, and the only question is whether you're making your sex life meaningful. Well... The idea of theological liberalism was we'll save Christianity from its disastrous truth claims. Stuff like resurrection from the dead and empty tombs and miracles and walking on water and, and all of this. We'll, we'll find an inner meaning that we can retain and we have to let all the rest of it go. Uh, one of the most famous theological liberals in Germany in the early 20th century was a New Testament scholar by the name of Rudolf Bultmann. And he said very famously, people who use electric razors and turn on electric lights don't believe in heaven and hell, period. Get over it. That was the first round. The second round came after World War II. And it really came in the 60s and the 70s. Some of you, and uh, I won't ask for a uh, raising of hands on this one. Some of you will remember the mid-1960s, the time cover story, Is God Dead? Uh, and it was raised by... The, uh, the new round of radical thought that came, and, and, and by the way, you won't be surprised, came in Europe first. The secularization of the culture took place 
in Europe in advance of the United States. And, uh, and yet it came to the United States. Uh, Thomas J. Altizer was the, the figure's name who wrote the book on the death of God. And it, it made Time's cover story. That's kind of a cultural moment. When you've made the cover story of Time magazine, that, you, you, there, there's something major going on here. And, uh, and then you had the radical theology movement, and then you had a lot of denominations just decide, we're going to shift left. The culture is shifting left, so we're going to shift left. And that's where most of the mainline Protestants… And in a city like Atlanta, I was editor of the Christian Index here for four years, from 1989 to 1993, and, and I got stuck right in the middle of that in this city and in this state. When there were denominations just shifting uh, to the left, the, the Presbyterians, massive shift to the left. Uh, the Episcopalians, even more massive shift to the left. And, and so you had churches that had, for their entire life as a denomination, identified with 2,000 years of Christian teaching that threw it overboard with a couple of votes. And you started seeing it. When I was here, it was the Presbyterian church. I ended up on the front page of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh, when the Presbyterian church uh, uh, took its action. And, uh, and, and we thought, well, that, 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 that probably is something that happened in New York or, or Berkeley or, or someplace like that, probably not in Atlanta. And some of you will remember that shortly thereafter, um, right in downtown Atlanta, you had major churches that announced we are, we're joining this revolution. And that, that was now over 20 years ago. On that second round of theological liberalism, the, the, you, had the, you had churches begin to break with historic Christian teachings on issues, especially of sexuality and marriage and gender and all the rest. And, and so by the time you get from the, say, the, the late 1980s to five or six years ago, you basically knew where all these denominations were. The third round is what we're in now, and it is not just in terms of biblical authority. It's, it's, it's not really at this point about resurrection of the dead and walking on water. It's about whether God determines who we are sexually and whether God has set down rules for human sexuality that are binding and for human flourishing. See, that's what's really, really at issue here. The great sexual liberation project that's going on around us believes that human beings will be liberated from prejudice, homophobia, a pattern of oppression, and, and we need to admit there has been homophobia and there has been a pattern of oppression. But the way of liberating them is now to say, and liberating all people sexually is to say there are no rules or the only rule is consent. And, and, and that all those old rules were simply evidence of prejudice and intolerance and and tradition that had been used to, to, uh, to hold down sexual minorities and those who are outside the norm. And, and now we're involved in the great project of liberating all humanity. Human flourishing, say, the new revolutionaries, and they at least used to call themselves that. They called themselves a sexual revolution until they won. Now we're the counter-revolutionaries. Uh, you know, here it comes down to this. We don't believe merely that there is a God and that He has spoken and that He has a right to define our sex lives. We believe that He has done so not because He hates us, but because He loves us and because He made us for His glory. And even in making us, creating us as male and female in His image, and I wish we had time, but just follow through the biblical meta narrative on this from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where you have the creation of the man and the woman both made in the image of God, given in Genesis 1 verse 28, a creation mandate, a dominion mandate to multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God, with other 
of, of, of beings made in God's image, able to... The, the, the whole theme of Genesis 1 is that human beings living out the flourishing in which God had, had uh, intended us will be coming together as man and woman, then as husband and wife, but that becomes clear in Genesis 2. And, and doing so in a way that we fill the earth with other image bearers of God in order to declare the glory of God. He, he gave us these rules for our flourishing because He knows what is good for us. He made us. B.B. Warfield, I'm finishing a little project on B.B. Warfield, that great Presbyterian Princetonian. You know, he, he reminded us in a little book, The Plan of Salvation, he said, if God creates the world, He takes responsibility for it. And if God creates the world, He does so because He loves all everything that He's created because He loves Himself. He, he loves what He makes for His own glory. And when He makes the human creature and makes us alone in His image, He has a particular care for us. He has a particular concern for us. He has a particular word for us, not because He hates us, but precisely because He loves us. But if you're talking on the American college or university campus these days and you say, yes, well, there are biblical rules related to sexuality, and it's because God loves us, People don't even have a category for that. Because the moment you say, thou shalt not, you're stepping on someone's toes. And in this society, there's no greater moral mandate than personal autonomy. And, and by the way, the Bible really doesn't have a category of personal autonomy. That's why we're going to have a problem, by the way, because there are an awful lot of people sitting in evangelical churches who think they're Christians. But they're really not committed to God's sovereignty. They're committed to personal autonomy. Up until now, the cultures worked for us. We've been the good guys. People who wanted to identify with the good guys came and joined us. What's it going to be like when we're the bad guys? What's it going to be like when your 18-year-old sets foot on a college campus where he or she may lose friends or never even have them from day one when they're identified as a member of your church? What, what happens when a young person from your church graduates, gets the MBA, gets hired by a Fortune 500 corporation and is told either you sign on to the diversity plan in its entirety, or there's no place for you here. And by the way, in its entirety means in its entirety. Uh, I had an unexpected opportunity to be face-to-face -face with uh, one of America's leading CEOs, the CEO of one of the top five largest companies in the world, and uh, he had a problem he needed to see me about, which was interesting. And uh, I had an issue I wanted to talk to him about. And uh, knowing that I was going to be meeting with him, a young man in his company who's a member of a church you would recognize in New York City had emailed me saying, I'm about to be cashed out in this company because I said no to attending a same-sex wedding. And I've been written up as being uncommitted to the company's diversity plan because this was one of my colleagues. I, I don't know what to do. So I asked this Fortune 500 CEO, I said, what does, what does this mean? He said, well, he said, it's the same as in your world. He said, we hire and promote 
those who are most enthusiastic about everything we represent, and that is a core corporate value. In other words, goodbye. And you look at this and you recognize that's not 2025. That's not 2045. That conversation actually wasn't 2014 either. It was about three years ago. And you recognize that's, that's where we already are. So what's it going to take? Well, if we had time, we would look at the remainder of 1 Peter and come to understand that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter in two epistles grounds Christians in what it means to have been elected to salvation and called to sanctification in the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Mistakes are made very clear in chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call him on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Then look at verse 9 of chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So then what? Finally, look at these two verses. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." It's the most amazing verse. 1 Peter 2, verse 12 is written for us now. Look at those words again. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that, look at these words, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So in other words, we're to keep our conduct and our witness pure, not only in a time like this, but especially in a time like this, so that even when we are criticized for it, even that criticism points them to the goodness and the glory of God in ways they might not yet recognize. We don't get to choose our times, and that, that's a major issue in terms of the Christians to whom Peter was writing. They didn't get to choose. They didn't choose to be exiles. We didn't sign up for this, and yet we did, didn't we? When we were baptized, we were baptized into this church. 
And I confess to you that when I was baptized in the Southside Baptist Church in Lakeland, Florida, and I was baptized into obedience to Christ, I knew a lot would be required of me, all that my young heart understood. I had no idea this was coming. When I was in seminary, if you had told me that I would be writing a book in the year 2014 on how the church can survive and bear witness in American society by teaching what the church has always taught, I would have thought that was science fiction. And here we are. And Jesus Christ is Lord, and God is on His throne, and the message to us is the same as Peter offered to the Christians in the first century, exiled throughout Asia Minor, behave. Show the glory of God in obeying Christ. Let your conduct be so honorable before the Gentiles that even when they criticize you and call you evildoers, they inevitably bring glory to God in so doing. And you know, this is, a, this is an interesting time for Christian witness because for the first time in our lifetimes, we're being asked, why would you pay such a price? And our answer is because a far greater infinite price was paid for us. That's a testimony of the gospel we've never been able to give before. So I'm going to stop at this point and simply turn to Dr. Minnikoff. All right, thank you very much. What you say? <clears throat> I appreciate uh, mentioning the similarities between our church here and mm -hmm. your home church because mm -hmm. I know everyone here would consider me a, a picture of Southern refinement. So yeah. <laughs> I'm really appreciative of that. Uh, about five years ago, I'm walking... Yeah hiking in Amicalola Falls, North uh -huh. Georgia, with my family. Right. And I run across some uh, folks from Oregon, my home state. Yep. And, uh, you know, we're wearing our Oregon shirts, making conversation. Mm -hmm. I came here to pastor. They came here to escape Oregon. Yeah. They wanted to raise their kids in the Bible Belt. Mm -hmm. uh, how much longer before the South more closely resembles Portland, Oregon, or New York City? Tremendous question. As a native of the Northwest, you'll know that the Northwest was never evangelized. So uh, it, there, there are two secularization stories, two narratives in the United States. There's the East and the West. And uh, the most secular portion of the United States right now is not the Northwest, but it's the Northeast. And what makes that even more haunting is that that was where Christianity in the United States was born. And so you had, a, you had the region that was most churched at one point that is now most secular. And then, of course, you have the never evangelized region of the Northwest. Well, that pretty much tells us where we are in the United States. We have, we have two different secularization stories. They're both happening in a hurry. And, and one of them is where there never was evangelization, and we're recognizing we are so far behind, it's hard to imagine how we can ever. Because if you go to the Northwest right now, I was there two weeks ago speaking in Portland. And when you're in the Northwest, it's, it's much like going to a foreign country in this respect. It's, it has an entire culture, an entire worldview that is now built up without reference to theism. And so it's, it's not like you're bringing the good news of Jesus that can be incorporated into a larger worldview. It, it requires an upending of the entire worldview. And uh, that, that's that's that narrative. The, the, the problem in the Northeast or on the East Coast secularization is that they still have a lot of tall steeples in the neighborhood. 
There's still a lot of churches, and an institutional religion still has a presence, but it's been evacuated of all of its thorny, hard teachings. That's the one you have to fear here. You don't have to fear that all of a sudden they're going to be tearing down churches and throwing preachers in jail. You have to worry that what's going to happen is that most of the churches around you are going to capitulate to the spirit of the age. And I mean, because cultural Christianity means that the culture is going to determine what the Christianity is. And we got to recognize that Bible Belt Christianity has been largely a cultural Christianity. Now, that's not to say there aren't believers in there. It's just to say we've always known that there were people who were not seriously minded Christians who were populating our churches, and especially the megachurch model in the, in the American Sun Belt. Um, you know, that, that's, that's the apex of cultural Christianity. It, it's, it's hard to imagine how most of that survives. Now, it'll survive here longer than anywhere else. Uh, I, I had a national radio program for a decade, and uh, in the radio business, they talk about broadcast radio as an iceberg medium. In other words, it's dying, but icebergs are dying. It just takes a long time for them to die. And, and so, uh, right now, when was the last time anyone, don't, don't even raise your hand to depress me. Um, when was the last time anyone bought a radio? You don't buy radio. No one's bought a radio in a generation. You buy things that have radios in them, maybe. And, uh, and so, but if you're looking at that, that's an iceberg medium. Well, the Sunbelt, deep south, cultural Christianity is an iceberg reality. It's melting, but in some places it's melting kind of slowly. Um, but you're in Atlanta. Let's not fool ourselves. What's Atlanta trying to be like? Valdosta or Manhattan? You've answered your own question. So the cultural forces trying to align Atlanta with the larger culture are going to win in this in terms of the economy, in terms of the politics, and in terms of, uh, of, of the larger cultural system, the educational units. By the way, secularization in the United States has always been uneven. In Europe, it was just, it's just massive. You know, less than 2% of people in France go to any church service uh, th that's rather typical. Uh, in the United States, the church's attendance is, you know, people, at least in the United States, say they believe in God. And, and this gets to the point I, I kind of want to point to here, and that is that uh, Peter Berger, the father of secularization theory in the United States, still living in his 10th decade of life, he's lived long enough to formulate a theory and to revise it twice. Uh, when people now talk about secularization theory, he's still around to tell you what it is, kind of like having Christopher Columbus to tell you about discovering America. And uh, Peter Berger, he, he did this massive longitudinal study of the most religious and least religious societies on earth. That's just sociology, not theology. And he came up that the most religious nation on earth was India, and, and the least religious nation on earth was Sweden. And he was asked about the United States of America, and he said, well, the United States of America is made up of a nation of Indians ruled over by an elite of Swedes. <laughs> and, and yet it's the elites, and his point was the elites control the culture. And, and Berger was brilliant at showing that the elites, this is, this is different than it's ever been before. I mean, I mean okay, let me give you an example. When, when, you, when you, I'm speaking to people my age and older, okay? When we buy a computer, who sets it up for us? Someone our age? These two right here would be far better off <laughs> in setting up our computer than we would. And, and so now you got the 14-year-old who's the expert over his dad and his grandfather in expertise. That 
there's no previous generation in human history in which that was typical. And, and the cultural elites aren't trying to speak to us. They don't care about us. They're speaking beyond us. The most secularized space in America right now is the college and university campus. Go back to the opening illustration, University of California. And even though you go to a place like Athens, Georgia, University of Georgia, it's not, doesn't feel like Berkeley, okay? I've been to both campuses recently. There's a difference. The air in Berkeley smells differently than the air <laughs> in Athens. But the ideas being taught in the classroom are far more consistent and the same than you might want to think. That's where they're aiming. And they're aiming in the schools. I mean, that, that, that's, I mean, the I won't even get into a lot of the political discussions. I won't mention Common Core. I'll just simply say that federal control over the educational process has a great deal to do with the fact that everyone knows that the worldview issues in the fourth grade determine the future of the society, not the worldview issues if you're going to wait to graduate school. You got to go to where the curriculum is being shaped and where minds and hearts are being attuned. And it goes to that basic worldview conflict. So, how long will it last? Not long. Um, but but, it, but longer, than, longer than people in Manhattan could believe. All right. Yeah, an employee of Coke. Mm -hmm. I remember the church went mm -hmm. up to her a few years ago and uh, playfully said, I don't like the recent advertising campaign, like happiness right. in a bottle. I said, you know, syrup, sugar water is not happiness. Yeah. She said, it doesn't matter. They're not advertising to you. Right. You're too old. Uh, Deal with it. <clears throat> basically but I still drink Coke. Um, there are a lot of people in evangelical churches who mm -hmm. are absolutely 100% morally, biblically supportive of mm -hmm. traditional marriage. Right. But when they get on the street or get in the office, <clears throat> they run into the question or the temptation to say, you know what, morally, biblically, I'm supportive of same-sex marriage, but I'm not sure politically I should impose my moral belief <clears throat> upon my coworker right. who has a different belief. So how would you address the Christian who's biblically a supporter of traditional mm -hmm. marriage but is concerned it's inappropriate to politically impose that conviction on a neighbor? I'm glad to speak to that. I simply want to say that question's time-stamped. Um, that was where the hottest debates were, say, two years ago. But given the trajectory of the courts, I don't think that's going to be a continuing. I don't, I don't think we're going to be debating about the legalization of same-sex marriage uh, for very long. I, I say that with a sense of loss and concern, but I, I think that's becoming abundantly clear. But let's assume we are back there making that argument, or right now in Atlanta or Marietta or North Fulton, you're making that argument. Let's, let's concede. It's a, it's a smart conversation. In other words, it, it, it is not intellectually credible simply to say, we believe that everything taught in Scripture is to be made into law in 2014. Um, so then why marriage? Well, it's because of a very important issue. Number one, marriage is not just something in a moral list found in the Bible. It's central to the Bible's presentation of what it means to be human. And, and here's something that we need to recognize. Every previous society, especially in Western civilization, has understood marriage as what's called a pre-political institution. In other words, governments throughout the last 2,000 years in the West have not sought 
to come up with a definition of marriage, but rather merely to respect and define what marriage was before there ever was a government. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. In other words, there are political institutions. Congress is a political institution. The, the EEOC is a political institution. Uh, contracts are a political institution. They're, they're political realities. But marriage has been understood in the West as a pre-political institution. Government's responsibility is not to come up with it. Government doesn't create it. It merely respects it and defines it according to what it is. And of course, now it's a very different reality. Every society legislates marriage. It's necessary. You know, so people will say, well, why don't we just get government out of the marriage business? Well, it doesn't work because government has to respect, well, that may be an exaggeration. Any healthy government must respect that which comes before it. And um, there's so much here, Pastor, as you well know. There's a Catholic principle here. It's, it's just a true principle. The Catholics have articulated it better than we have for years, and we've got to recover it in a big hurry. It's called subsidiarity. And it's a very important moral Christian principle. And subsidiarity, rooted in Scripture, means this. You start solving the problem locally rather than nationally. You go to the smallest unit of meaning and fix it there, because if it's not fixed there, you can't fix it later. You can ameliorate damage, but you can't fix it. So, in, in other words, if you've got a problem of a disobedient child, you don't need Congress to deal with it. You need a mom and a dad. And it's because the family is pre-political. It exists before the government. And, and so, there's a basic principle anyone that understands political science knows. When the natural family, mother, father, and their children, when that unit is strong, government can be small. But when that unit is weak and broken, government has to be huge. So, in terms of asking the question about marriage, that principle of subsidiarity reminds us that there can be no human happiness when the natural family is torn asunder, when marriage is disrespected. Just to give you an example, Friday, a major study came out, no, it had to be Thursday because I talked about it on the briefing Friday morning. Thursday, a major study came out from a group known as the Council on Contemporary Families. And just by its very name, you know this is not exactly a far-right group. Uh, but they paid for a very credible amount of research on family structure. And the Washington Post, Friday morning, came out with the headline, there is now no norm in family life. Uh, the, and, and the amazing thing is that the Washington Post, one of America's most liberal newspapers, acknowledged the problem. They said, when we had a stable structure of a husband and a wife and their children, and that unit was strong, this, here's their line, economists define that as peak family efficiency. Just look at that. Here you have a common grace testimony of the fact that what God suggested was His purpose, and then He commanded it in Genesis. Turns out economists in retrospect are saying, that was amazingly efficient. Um, but they, the Washington Post came out about this report and said there's now no new norm. There is no normal family in America, no normal family structure. Okay? That word efficiency they actually documented that when the family was the norm, the natural family, crime rates way down, education rates way up, and welfare rates way down. Um, you look, in, in other words, everybody legislates marriage. Everybody legislates marriage for a purpose. Our concern for marriage is just that society respect what it is. 
the, the, in my book, Aftermath, the title on same-sex marriage is The Impossible Possibility of Same-Sex Marriage. It, according to the Bible, it's, it's not marriage. They can call it marriage. Government may call it marriage. It looks like it will. But it can never, it can never fulfill the functions of marriage. By the way, they know this in terms of the historic functions of marriage. The proponents of, of, of same-sex marriage, the smart ones, and there are many smart ones, Jonathan Rausch, Andrew Sullivan, people like that, very prominent um, gay proponents of same-sex marriage, they will say we're stripping marriage of its ontological status, which means it's, uh, it, its relationship in being to a man and a woman with a procreative function to it being an expressive romantic function. Now, we believe that the expressive romantic function is a part of marriage, part of the reason why we're so happy to be married. But that's not what marriage is first and foremost, which is why Christian churches have told people, a husband and a wife who aren't particularly happy with one another, you're still married. I better stop preaching. All right. <clears throat> Thank you very much. I've taken your questions, so we're going to pray and then gather uh, in the sanctuary, right? Please join me. Heavenly Father, thank you, for, uh, thank you for your words to Peter and for the great reminder that we are exiles in a fallen world. We want to live faithfully here. We want to be salt and light. We want to be those marked by gracious speech, always seasoned with salt, that we might know how to address those in whom we come into contact with. And we thank you for Dr. Moeller. Pray now that you would uh, use the sermon we're about to receive to build us up in the faith. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.